Now our scripture reading is from the second chapter of the book of Acts and verses 1 through 13. You'll find it on page 909 of the Pew Bible. Let's stand together for the reading of scripture. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were proclaiming by God's word, the truth of the gospel. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forevermore. Please be seated. Let me take a moment, uh, first of all, both to express uh, my gratitude to your minister, Dr. Stone, for his invitation to me to be with you for worship this morning, and also to uh, give you a moment to readjust your hearing instruments to an accent that is manifestly uh, not from North Dallas. <laughs> but it is a treat to be here. Uh, as I entered the building, I had a sense, I think I have been in this room before, uh, when presumably I was a much younger man, and so if you were here then, uh, you've lived another 20 years by the grace of God, and it is a joy to see you and to be with you. Your minister asked me to continue the series that has just begun in the Acts of the Apostles. And so we're coming not just to verses 1 through 13 that we have read together, but I think it will be helpful if we use these verses in order to take a wide-angle lens view of everything that we find in Acts chapter 2, and then, as I see from the bulletin, you will return to later verses in the weeks that follow. 
And the reason for doing that is because of the question that is asked in verse 12. As these people in Jerusalem hear this extraordinary phenomenon of a rushing mighty wind, and an even more extraordinary phenomenon of these men from Galilee assumed to be relatively poorly educated, speaking out the wonderful works of God in such a way that all of these people from all round the known world heard the gospel spoken in their own language. And you can appreciate why they would ask the question that we find here in verse 12. What does this mean? What does this mean? It would, I think, have been a very interesting little examination of us if the elders or deacons at the church door this morning had handed us a blank three-by-five card with a single question on the top, What does Acts chapter 2 mean? What is Acts chapter 2 about? My suspicion, although I don't know you, is that there would be a diversity of answers. And I want us to try and focus here on the answer the Apostle Peter gives to the question. This is a question inevitably we ask when we come to a chapter like this and phenomena like this. And here in the rest of the chapter, the Apostle Peter gives us the correct answer, or I think I should probably say the correct answers. And I hope very much that you've got at least one right. My suspicion is that many people outside of this congregation where I know you are well instructed, many people would simply say Acts chapter 2 is the chapter about the Holy Spirit. But I think you have already learned from the opening verses of the Acts of the Apostles that the Acts of the Apostles is a man-made title to this book, not a God-given title. And it's certainly not a full title. So when those of you who are of my generation listen to sermons on the Acts of the Apostles, clever individuals would say to us, it really should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And then as we read the Acts of the Apostles for ourselves and read the opening verses, we realize, as we've already heard this morning, that it is a book about the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. It is a book about Jesus Christ. And so if we focus on the apostles, or even if we were to focus, as many do, on the Holy Spirit, we would be in danger of falling short what Luke is seeking to present to us. That in his gospel, he had narrated what Jesus began to do and teach. And in the Acts of the Apostles, he narrates what Jesus then went on to continue to do and teach. So the great message of Luke is, keep your eyes fixed and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this book is all about him. 
And if after however many weeks of studying the Acts of the Apostles, you do not have a grander vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and have rearranged your life personally and even as a church family around the Lord Jesus Christ, then somehow or another we would have missed the real focus of what the Apostle Peter is saying and what Luke wants us to learn. And that's important for this reason. Because, in fact, Acts chapter 2 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Peter's sermon is introduced with words from the second chapter of the Old Testament prophecy of Joel. But you'll notice once he has announced his text, virtually everything that follows exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this that I want us to try and focus attention on as we think about this together. To understand that the day of Pentecost is the next stage in the saving ministry of the Lord Jesus. Now, we're familiar with a very simple principle. That, for example, the death of Christ was a once and for all unrepeated and unrepeatable event. And that the same is true of the resurrection of Christ, a once-for-all and an unrepeatable event. And that the ascension of Christ is a once-for-all and unrepeatable event. And at the end, the return of Christ is a once-for-all and an unrepeatable event. But it's not always so clear to Christians that exactly the same is true of the day of Pentecost. It is the next stage following the ascension prior to Christ's return of Christ's once-for-all mighty act in sending the Holy Spirit to His people in an astonishingly new way. Now, of course, in all of these other once-for-all events, as believers, we come to share. As Paul teaches us, Christ has died for us, and there is a sense in which all believers have died in union with Christ and share in the benefits of his death, similarly with his resurrection. He says at the beginning of Colossians 3, we even share in his exaltation. Our true lives are hidden with Christ in God, and we shall certainly share in the glory of his return. When Christ appears, we shall appear with him in glory. So, of course, there is a sense in which this once and for all event is a glorious reality in which we all come to share. As Paul again says elsewhere, we were all baptized with the one Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ and enter into the benefits and blessings of the Spirit's ministry in exalting Him and joining us to Him. But we will never really grasp the wonder of all this, I think Peter is saying, until we understand what the meaning of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is. If ever he agreed with his friend John's gospel, it would be here, wouldn't it? When the Spirit comes, he will not fix our gaze upon him, he will fix our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as Peter leads the people through this, I want us now to, to try and take a closer view at four things that he emphasizes. And we'll need to do this, of course, today very briefly. What does this mean? Well, first of all, it means the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Peter begins with the quotation from Joel chapter 2, and he points out that this prophecy of Joel, that in the last days there would be new and glorious events taking place among God's people, this prophecy has been fulfilled, and therefore the last days have dawned. They are already with us. I'm sure you love it when zealous Christians, not least in this part of the cosmos, say, do you think we might be living in the last days? And you smile quietly and you say yes, and because you're a Presbyterian, they're astonished that you believe that. (laughs) And then you add with a smile, we've been living in the last days since the day of Pentecost. And this is the This is the glorious reality of our present life. And in the last days, God has poured out His Spirit, prophesies Joel, on all flesh. I wonder if you remember the occasion in ancient Israel when the Spirit of the Lord came upon a a relatively small group of 70 of a million, perhaps two million people, and they prophesied. And then they found two people outside the camp prophesying, and they ran back to Moses. They wanted Moses to stop them. They weren't one of us. And Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Would that all the Lord's people prophesied. Now, by prophecy, the Scriptures there do not mean foretelling the future. They mean foretelling the wonder and the glory of God and His redemptive work for our salvation. But you see what Moses was saying? He was almost expressing a a sense of the inadequacy, almost the frustration of living under the old dispensation, knowing that there was a glorious new dispensation to come. And what Moses longed for, Joel prophesied would take place, and took place on the day of Pentecost. And you notice how Joel describes it, and Peter takes this up. The way in which the knowledge of God came to the people of God In the Old Testament days, prophecy, visions, dreams, he says, those will be given no longer to a select few. So that as Jeremiah says, looking forward to the new covenant, it will no longer be necessary for the select few who are called to be prophets to come to you and say, the Lord has revealed his secret to me and I want to share it with you, so come and know the Lord. No, says Jeremiah, on that day when the Spirit falls on all believers, 
all will have this glorious new immediate, no longer second-hand knowledge of the Lord because the ultimate secret of the Lord will be revealed to all of us in the one prophet, the final prophet, the perfect Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Peter is saying is happening before their eyes. The secret of the kingdom of God is being made known to them. Because in their very presence in that city, Jesus Christ had been exalted as God's final prophet. And therefore, yes, there are still preachers and teachers in the church. But no preacher or teacher in the church has more immediate access to God, to His Son, to His Spirit, and to His Word than any other believer. The sheer privilege of belonging to this new covenant era that has been inaugurated by the coming of the Spirit is, is beyond price. And of course, the challenge to us is that so many of us treat it as though it were cheap. The glory of Christ has been manifested to us, recorded in His Word, with which we should be wholly saturated. And so there is a challenge in this privilege, especially for us, even in a sense even greater than for those who heard Peter's sermons, men and women who possessed no Bibles of their own. But we should seek out the secret that has been made known and come ourselves to know Jesus Christ in His Word. Some of you, I have no doubt, have begun to understand, perhaps since coming into this church family, that for years the secret was hidden from you, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And Peter is urging us, if the secret has been made known to us, to be saturated in that secret of the exaltation of Jesus Christ that we find in His Word. So, the first thing that Peter underlines is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The second thing he underlines is the way in which that fulfillment has taken place. What does this mean? This means the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you came from where I come from and were of my generation, you would know that our present queen became queen, do you know when? 1952. Her coronation took place in 1953. And there is something rather similar being revealed here by Simon Peter, reflecting as I think he does on what he heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ ascended and was exalted but when he ascended, he entered into a world that was invisible to Simon Peter. 
So how does he know that the ascended Lord Jesus has, has entered into his coronation rites? How does he know, as for example, in the words of Psalm 24, that the angels have welcomed him with the cry, who is this king of glory who ascends into the heavenly presence? And heard the answer, as it were, returning to them. It is the Lord, strong and mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. Open up the doors and let the King of glory come in. But how does Simon Peter know that he has ascended to glory? How does he know that he has been crowned? Well, you know, he gives us a little clue later on in the passage when he says this. In verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, now notice the words that follow, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see what he's saying? Do you remember how Jesus says in the upper room discourse, I will go to the Father and when I have gone to the Father, I will ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to you. And what Peter and the others are experiencing is the visible evidence that Jesus has kept his promise to them and that the Father has kept his promise to him. You remember how it's put in the second uh, Psalm, verse 8, where the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And Peter realizes now it's happened. He's done it. He's fulfilled his promise. He's asked for the promised Holy Spirit to be poured out as he is here, not just upon those who live in Jerusalem or even in the land, but those who are spread to the very ends of the earth. It is the sign, this outpouring of these gifts of the Spirit is the sign that our Savior is exalted, enthroned, crowned, reigning, and ruling. His throne and glory is now occupied by the Savior. I actually can't remember 1952, although I was alive, but I remember 1953, because every child in the country had gifts lavished upon them by local government to celebrate the coronation of the queen. And that's what's happening here. There is this extraordinary, this un, it's not happened since, there is this extraordinary outpouring of the blessing and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a most unique way. But it's all pointing to him. It's saying, look to Jesus, look to Christ. See through the veil that separates time from eternity and recognize that he is seated upon the throne of glory and he reigns and he rules and he is now both Lord and Christ. And you see, that's a second lesson, isn't it? The person who is filled with the Holy Spirit is the person who looks to Jesus Christ 
and acknowledges without reservation that he is the Savior Christ and that he is the Lord of their lives. And friends, exactly the same thing is true of the church family that is filled with the Spirit. Now that leads us to the third thing I want us to try and notice. So this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This expresses the coronation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, this is the beginning of the new creation. Now, I think Luke tells this story with a little more subtlety, but I think it's definitely evident in these verses. Because you notice, the passage doesn't start with what Peter says, but with what God does. And the first thing God does is to send this rushing mighty wind. Now, that, that was not simply a change in atmospheric conditions. That was a signal. What would it have signaled to these believers who were emerging out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament? Well, I have very little doubt that it would have signaled to them that what God did at creation, He was now doing again. You know, the word spirit and the word wind are one and the same word, both in the Old Testament written in Hebrew and the New Testament written in Greek. And when we read about that wind that appeared in the early moments of creation to bring order to the darkness, we understand this was a work of the Spirit of God. And when we read in Genesis 2 of man being breathed into life by God, we understand that this is a work of the Spirit of God. And when we read of the flood being brought to an end by the powerful drying work of the wind or the Spirit, we understand that the presence of the wind in this remarkable way is an indication of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in doing something new, in bringing into being a new beginning, a new creation. That's why we often speak about Christians, and the church always has, of a new humanity. As uh, people used to say about them in the early days, they are a third race of men. We don't belong here. We belong to what the Apostle Paul calls the new creation. And the amazing thing about this new creation that the old creation can never produce is the unifying of people into one family from the diverse families of the nations of the earth. What's taking place here is, in simple terms, a reversal of the consequences of man's sin in what happened in the days of the Tower of Babel, when God came down in judgment and divided their tongues so that they could no longer be one. And we are living, we are living in these very weeks, in a day in world history, where it is so evident that all the efforts of the nations of the world to be one are powerless powerless to bring unity, powerless to bring 
humanity into fellowship. And here, we have all experienced this surely in what Peter is saying in Acts chapter 2, when God's Spirit brings us into God's family, no matter what social class we belong to, no matter what nation we belong to, no matter what side of town we live on, no matter what our bank balance may be, no matter what class we belong to, we are, as Paul says, all one glorious family in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's again what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, isn't it? If, literally he says, if any. Now, if you're King James, you're going to finish the sentence, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Just blank that out of your mind. King James was not the best king of England <laughs> or of Scotland, <laughs> nor were his translators the best translators in Christian history. What Paul literally says is, if any, in Christ, new creation. And many of us have experienced that, haven't we? We came to Jesus Christ because we wanted our sins forgiven, and what we discovered was, yes, our sins were forgiven, but it was, it was, as, though we, it was as though we were walking into a new world order altogether, a new creation. Our eyes were opened, and we were brought into this amazing, amazing reality of what one of my colleagues used to call the worldwide, eternity-long family of Jesus Christ, in which for all our frailty, for all our failings, we know that this is the work that the Holy Spirit is producing in us. My dear friends, this is one reason our churches today are of enormous significance as the Western world moves towards post-Christendom, because you can't find in the world what God has produced in the church. The old creation does not have the resources that the Holy Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ has to produce a new creation. And that's actually the fourth point in this passage as Luke moves beyond Peter's sermon, but actually he's moving towards the conclusion of this chapter. So, there is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There is the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the beginning of a new creation. And there is the birthday of a transformed church family. If you read through the Acts of the Apostles, I hope you will again and again and again, you'll notice that occasionally Luke pauses and, and he, he, presses the, he presses the button on his camera to take a snapshot. This whole series of snapshots in which he says, this is what the Holy Spirit made the church like. And this is the most important one. At the end of this chapter from verse 42 to the end of verse 47. He's saying, when Christ is exalted and the Spirit comes, this, this birthday takes place among God's people of a transformed 
church. And he's saying, this is what it looks like. This is the ultimate evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in my personal life, but in our church community. And I scarcely need to point out to you what he emphasizes. He emphasizes their devotion to the Word of God. He emphasizes their delight in true worship. He emphasizes their deep mutual affection and care for one another. And then, as it were, the ultimate evidence is that the world looks on and begins to hunger and thirst for what this church has, and people are converted. And it's a very interesting thing later on in the Acts of the Apostles, the, the greater the sense of awe of the holiness of God, the majesty of the Holy Spirit, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the more that is true of the church, then almost simultaneously people step back because they feel they could not, they could not possibly be part of that. And in the very next sentence, Luke tells us people were rushing to join this church, longing to find the home, the Savior, the Spirit, the Heavenly Father that these early Christians had found. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit that comes upon the church transforms the church. And I think that means, I don't know how many sermons are planned, but at the present rate of two a chapter and 28 chapters, that's a whole year of sermons on the Acts of the Apostles. And if one thing is true, it is surely this, that we should not end this year the same church that began this year, but that we should be transformed into a community on which the world looks and is made hungry and thirsty for what those who belong here have found. Some of you may be very familiar with a movement that has been in the churches in the last maybe 20 years. It's a church planting movement called Acts 29, the Acts 29 movement. Oh, you know, there are only 28 chapters in Acts. You get the message. But you know, all that can be in vain unless we are, first of all, Acts 2, 42 to 47 churches. Because these are the churches in which Jesus Christ is exalted, in which God is known as Father and we become family, and the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell in abundance and joy. So may, by God's grace, may Redeemer be that kind of church and have that kind of impact. Let us pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its nourishment and instruction. We thank You for its challenge. We thank You most of all that You have called us to be part of this worldwide family of God that will last for all eternity. And we pray that by your grace, we may here live together in such a way that will reflect what you will make us living together in that eternity. And we ask this for Jesus Christ, our Savior's sake. Amen. Well, let's sing in response.
the hymn on our order of service, Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away.